listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Okay, I have to admit, I was a little awestruck and intimidated by today's guest. B.J. Miller is a hospice and palliative medicine doctor who combines his personal experience with disability, his undergraduate studies in art history, and his medical education into his work as a practitioner and teacher. B.J.'s done a TED Talk. He's been profiled in the New York Times, interviewed by Oprah Winfrey and Krista Tippett, co-wrote A Beginner's Guide to the End. So see, a little intimidating. In reality, though, BJ is warm, welcoming, and extremely easy to talk with. A minute into our conversation, it was clear that he's made for this work, the work of supporting patients who are facing the end of life. While BJ is skilled at supporting others, he also carries his own grief. When his sister Lisa died of suicide, BJ didn't know what to do with the loss, so he did what so many of us do. He pushed it aside. It was his work of sitting and being present with those who were dying that taught him how to open up to his own grief, to reckon with the emotions of loss. BJ and I talk about pretty much everything in this conversation, about what palliative care actually is, about how an accident that almost ended his life brought him to this work, about how COVID-19 is affecting him, his staff, and the patients he works with, about historic and present-day racism in the medical field and how it impacts people at the end of life, and about his new venture, Metal Health, which provides online support for caregivers and those dealing with an advanced serious illness. BJ, thank you so much for taking time to be on Grief Out Loud with me today. I'm really looking forward to our time together. Well, thanks, Jenna. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And by here, listeners, we mean I'm at home in Portland, Oregon, and BJ just arrived in New Hampshire. So (laughs) (laughs) our here is a little bit more of a flexible term these days. Nice to be on the same planet with you. (laughs) Or at least on the same screen. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) So, BJ, I know we're going to talk a lot about your work in hospice and palliative care. And and those two words just immediately make me think of grief. But I'm curious, like, what role did, did grief play in your decision to move into this field of work? Mm. Well, it was a while. It took me, it was a while into this interest that I really came to realize how important grief was. I, I definitely earlier in my life and even earlier in my practice, even fully bought into palliative care, I, I still thought of as grief. I thought of grief as something um, much more time limited as something to, you know, maybe hold your breath and get through as quickly as possible. Uh, it's only in more recent years and, and just s- settling into this job and into this subject matter that I really kind of re- re-arrived or arrived at grief's importance, you know, relatively recently. And it's, a, it's been a real incredible sort of awakening and what I'm very grateful for. I wish I had learned it earlier in life. I have some regrets about how I handled grief from the past, but it's a relatively new beast to me, but a beautiful one or an important one. What do you, and it's kind of surprising to hear because you've been in this field for a while and yeah. to think like, oh, grief is kind of this new aspect that I'm thinking about in palliative and hospice care. And what do you understand about grief now that you didn't say at the beginning of your career? I didn't, I hadn't made the link to, to love. I hadn't made the the link from grief to love and how vitally, how, how vital a force it was. It felt like more of a pain without purpose. It was just a, 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 a painful thing that you maybe needed to go through. I would have certainly early from my training known that it was important in some ways and uh, unavoidable in some ways. And even if I had heard the language from my teachers 
in my patience, I just wasn't receiving the fully baked message until I really kind of looked inward myself. But I think the refinement, to answer your question, the refinement was really coming around to seeing its, its, its necessary linkage to love. And that really opened it up for me. And going in that direction of, of grief and love and, and really like a personal lens on grief, your sister died. She died of suicide just as you were sort of turning towards this, this work, this career. And just wondering, can you tell us a little bit about your sister and, and what kind of sibling relationship you shared? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lisa was her name. She was, uh, is her name was, is, say is, um, <laughs> She was four years or so older than me. So it was just the two of us um, in our family. And, you know, Lisa was, wow, man, she was a fascinating person, a tempest of a person too. Very, she uh, was really always engaged with the struggles of life, whether her own or on behalf of others. She had a huge brain and a huge heart, but she was also, she had lots of heat in her. She was posthumously diagnosed as manic depressive, um, bipolar. Somehow, tellingly, her therapist of a zillion years, me as a medical student, my family, we we missed that somehow, even though it was just glaringly obvious in retrospect. But we missed it because she was so, I, I would look at her and I didn't see any pathology. She was so convinced of her moods and they made so much sense to me. So I was always kind of like, as the younger brother chasing her around and seeing in her because of this sort of passionate depression and passionate exuberance, I felt like my sense as a younger person was, Oh, she has, she knows things I don't know. She gets, she has certainties that I can't fathom. And so I was always chasing her around and she was so compelling and so smart that she could have anybody thinking whatever she wanted them to think. And so all of us missed what was very obvious. Um, she was, she was, she had mental illness uh, undoubtedly. And in some ways it was a beautiful thing to not pathologize her, but it also, I think it really prevented getting help that I think really could have helped. Although, you know, gosh, there's much to say on this and, you know, suicide. What do I think of suicide? And then sometimes I wonder, of course, if it extinguished her pain, who am I to try to summon her back into that pain? But anyway, that, that's a, something of a tangent. We can talk about that. But, there, um, but back to your question, I mean, Lisa, so, so in terms of our dynamic, I mentioned a little bit of that, but true, too, that we were often estranged. So depending on where she was cycling through, um, there were periods where we weren't in conversation there was much of my childhood was spent. I was apparently the younger, the more love of the golden child, that sort of younger sibling dynamic. And so I was often sort of couched as part of the thing that it was a cause of agony for her. At least I was often used as an explanation of why she felt like she did. So of course that was tricky. I think just for me uh, in this whole arc, obviously we could talk for days about her, but for me, it was really, as I mentioned earlier, coming back to grief. I think I had really closeted grief because it was so painful to think about her death for all sorts of reasons. She was in a black box almost immediately. I got back on the horse, so to speak, and I was rewarded for that. I was rewarded for moving on quickly. I took down pictures of her. I put things away because I felt like that was a sort of a sickness, a nostalgic sickness. And so I really cordoned her off. And I cordoned off my feelings about her. And then, you know, years into it, I realized I had been really watching my patients grieve more fully. I realized they got to have a relationship to this person that they had lost. Whereas I was actively shutting down a relationship with my sister. And so it was really many, many years into, it's been 20 years since she died. But it's more recently now that I've opened that grief box up as a way to get back to having a relationship with my sister. And that was, that's, that's the singular example of why I was hardened around grief and why I subsequently opened and softened on it too. You know, that's something I've heard from other people of when, when their person dies, it's so painful that it just like wall that off, 
like, mm-hmm. and then maybe over time, slowly, like opening the door to look at the wall and maybe knocking on the wall. And then maybe eventually like boring a small hole into the wall to like touch into it over time. And I hadn't really thought about that idea of by walling off to the grief and to the pain, you are, you're also walling off to the possibility of remaining connected and in relationship with that person who died. So just really sitting in appreciation of of you talking about it in that way and how walking alongside your patients or being with your patients and and watching them maybe more fully embrace their grief Mm -hmm. has invited you to do the same. Mm -hmm. Very much so. So one of the questions I was going to ask you was how, how this work in hospice and palliative care has changed you, which I think we've already started to talk a little bit about. And and before maybe we we say more about that, could you just describe what the work is for folks maybe who hear those terms and are like, oh yeah, I know what that is. But then even for me, I'm like, actually, I don't really know what that is. Yeah. No, thank you for that question. It is, there's sort of a public service need to get these definitions right because we confuse the hell out of the public. And oftentimes that means people could really benefit from this kind of work avoid it because they don't understand it. So anyway, no, I really appreciate your question. I mean, even when I'm talking to a bunch of medical doctors, I still need to remind them what palliative care is. And it's an oddly evasive thing to understand. I don't know why the definition remains so elusive, but basically palliative care is, is, is always framed, you know, palliate just means to ease. That's what that word means. So you can, there's a vernacular, I mean, there's a common informal definition of that word and palliative care would just mean any care that's meant to ease. You know, if someone's, a, a palliative is something that makes life a little easier, eases the pain, the burden. And of course, that, that does speak to what we do. But palliative care as a, as a field, as a discipline, is contextualized around serious illness. It's always, that's what gets you in the door. Serious illness is left deliberately vague. I mean, what, what is serious? Well, I guess it's probably meant to discern between like, okay, Jenna, if you crashed your bike, you broke your arm, of course, you're going to have pain and it's going to be, a, it's, there'll be adjustments, et cetera. But you wouldn't be a good candidate for palliative care. That wouldn't be considered a serious illness per se. So anyway, the context of this field is, is serious illness. And the, basically, the, the idea is that this kind of care is it's the interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life, or you know, you might frame it around the treatment of suffering. So rather than treating a disease like cancer or heart disease, my job is to treat someone's suffering. And right out of the shoots, the, the word suffering is really key because that's totally subjective. I don't, I, as a doctor, I don't get to tell you, Jenna, if you're suffering. You tell me that, and it's an entirely subjective thing. There's no test for suffering. We all do it, but it's hard thing to define. And what might cause you to suffer may not cause me to suffer and vice versa. So another magical thing about this field is it kicks us into this subjective personal realm by its definition, which is in pretty stark contrast to the rest of medicine, which is constantly trying to objectify you, hold you against the standard of normalcy, et cetera. Palliative care is a way to kind of begin to unpack and depathologize normal states in life like suffering, like death. So anyway, so that's palliative care in, in large. Again, the interdisciplinary pursuit of quality of life and the treatment of suffering. And then hospice is a subset of palliative care, but is reserved for the end of life, the final months. So death increasingly does become the focus. And that's so that's a really, really key thing is most people think of palliative care and hospice or palliative care and end of life care as one and the same, but they're not. Um, as I said, there's nothing in the definition of palliative care that says anything about death or not how much time you have on the planet, et cetera. So that's the really key distinction for all of us to grasp that you don't have to be dying to get palliative care. You do have to be dying pretty soon to get hospice though. And with, with suffering, that could be emotional suffering. It could be philosophical suffering, physical suffering, not just body pain that we often think of in a medical place. You got it. So, I mean, that's a really key suffering. Again, something we all do, but it's hard to define. I mean, some people define suffering as a threat to our identity. Um, some uh, Cicely Saunders, who's a f- sort of founder of modern hospice, called it total pain. That's what she called suffering, which is, and just as you're saying, Jenna, like, you know, spiritual component, a social component, a physical, emotional, psychological. It's a much more complex amalgam. Um, that it's very individualized, how any of us experiences suffering is inherently individual. And I wonder too about 
so we talked a little bit like how this work has changed how you view and experience grief, both personally and, and maybe more from a perspective of like supporting others in their grief. And then I wonder about death, like how this work has changed, how you think about death, your own death, the death of other people in your life. And, and knowing that you also in college had, I don't know if you call it a near death experience, but had a very traumatic accident that caused a lot of physical suffering yeah. as well. Yep. Yeah, well, quick for your listeners. So the sophomore year of college, screwing around on a commuter train, and I was wearing a metal watch and got close to the power source and the uh, electricity arc to the watch. So I ended up losing my left arm below the elbow and both legs below the knees. And yeah, came close to death, was close to death for a couple of months in the burn unit. So yeah, that was when I was 19. That was a huge... The, my. <laughs> My favorite phrase for that is the cosmic spanking. That was my. That was the thing that some big, huge force that came along and just smacked me, and you know it was extremely humbling, um, among other things. But this big, big force that just really reoriented my life in some important ways, and got me interested in this field and in medicine in general. But yeah, that that was another sort of key element of palliative care because of the subjective nature as a as a practitioner in palliative care. You have to be in touch with your own experience of suffering, your own fears, your own hopes, etc. One of the cool things about this work is, you know, if you if you want to say that you want to become like a neurosurgeon, I would love this thought. Like neurosurgery, incredibly devoted people take, you know, they spend their whole lives studying and doing this work. And they're probably, you know, 99% of them will never have surgery on their own brains, right? Whereas in palliative care, subject matters, suffering, death, quality of life, et cetera, 100% of us experience these things. So right out of the shoots, it begs a different relationship to your personal life. It's also part of the hazard of this work. It's hard to keep boundaries. But anyway, I don't know why I got off on that tangent, but yeah. <laughs> oh, but yeah, about my injuries. Yes, it was, and for me, it was very, going into this line of work, was explicitly to, as a way of, of linking my personal and my professional lives and that the work I would do with patients, I could learn from myself and in this way feed my own personal development as, as I'm helping others. Well, and you make a great point about how, you know, you could be a brain surgeon and maybe never experience brain surgery. But for folks, you know, like me working in bereavement and supporting folks in grief, knowing that yes, I've already had grief and grief is definitely coming for me. Like there's no way I'm not going to experience that at some point. Mm -hmm. And for you working with folks who are facing the end of their life, death is coming for you and death is coming for all of us. And yeah. that there isn't that ability to separate. And I think about that too. When I, when I do trainings and, and talk with people, I can talk about a lot of stuff, but not grief. And I was like, what? Like, why is it easier to talk about child abuse and substance use disorders? And, and people are like, oh, well, because I know that'll never happen to me. But with grief, you don't get that out. You don't get to say, like, that's never going to happen to me. So, you know, you have your own work. And then I know supporting the staff that you work with, how, how do you all support? How do you support yourself? And how do you support your staff in mm. being in presence with, with, with people who are dealing with suffering and are facing the end of their lives, maybe sooner than they were hoping for. Yeah. Especially now and just the context of everything that's happening in our world. Yeah. It's really tricky. And whereas there's this opportunity that palliative care, uh, and this work, your work too, that we link our personal, our inner lives with our outer lives, you might say, that's a real opportunity. Yes. But as the person you're referencing, it's also a hazard. You know, I mean, you know, this is stuff you might want to avoid for as long as you can. So I don't recommend that. Um, <laughs> and that's my work is sort of me trying to, to flesh that out for myself is that actually it pays to look. And that's one of the great things you learn, especially around something as sort of monumental as death, say. Suffering is a little bit more daily and more accessible to folks. But death is, ooh, what the heck is it? I mean, you know, yes, it happens. We all know that. But what is it? What happens after it? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a, it's a doozy. And oftentimes what you'll hear from people, I wonder if you get this too, Jenna, like, oh, yeah, work must be so depressing. Or it must be so hard. You know, yeah, yeah, it's not easy. And it's emotionally laden, yes. But, I mean, if you talk to most hot folks who work in hospice, for example, around the end of life, most people will tell you that this, what feels like the secret, that and the, and the secret is, 
if you're terrified of death, the prescription is to look at it, not to run away from it. And the sooner we do that with some support, the sooner we can sort of set about living in a much in a fuller or richer or more uh, realized way versus, you know, try to keep things at bay as long as you can. And then it all comes crashing in in the final hours of life when there's not much to learn from or do, from, do, do with it. In this way, if we can find a way to enter these subjects earlier in life, we begin to have a relationship with them and they become less scary. They become more dynamic, more interesting. And so anyway, the point here is that this work, yes, it's very loaded and burnout is a real problem in this field. No two ways about it because you're around suffering all the time. And to be good at this job, like for you too, you empathy is a major tool. And yet, what does that mean? We are signing up to feel not just our own pain, but all these other people's pain too. Uh, it, that makes this work um, a true service, but boy, what a hazard as well. And compassion fatigue, burnout, these are very real forces. All of us in this field have danced with them, myself included. Yeah. I don't remember what your question was that I just went <laughs> off on all that, but there you go. <laughs> well, I think I was asking more of like, are, are there particular things that you are, are doing now or, or you're finding your staff is needing to do maybe even more so now or differently now to be able to, I mean, I love what you were saying about the antidote is also in a way kind of the poison, right? Like mm -hmm. if what mm -hmm. we're feeling overloaded with is the fact that we're sitting with people suffering every day, then sometimes the antidote is actually to look at our own suffering or to spend more time confronting that, which seems really counterintuitive. Yep. And, and like, what else, you know, besides sitting around the break room and talking about, you know, preparing for our own deaths, like what else are you yeah. and your staff doing in this time? Yeah. Right. Thank you for that reorientation. Right. I, so we naming, we've named the problem pretty well, but what to do about it? Yes, walking into it, looking at it, but even that needs to be dosed out. You can't just stay in this onslaught all the time, whether it's your own pain or somebody else's without doing damage. So for me, self-care, which is a funny phrase, that we've, it's interesting in healthcare that we had to name that. <laughs> right. um, because you'd think that that would be, you know, that you don't need to prove the need to take care of yourself. But yet the sort of pathological altruism model we've labored under, which is this idea that I'm a caregiver, I don't need anything. If, if I'm a doctor, I don't need sleep, I don't need to eat, I don't need to have a family, I don't need to leave the hospital. I'm so devoted that I just care, care, care. I'm a one-way machine. Of course, that does not work. <laughs> that breaks down. So there's this great tradition of burning out within healthcare and becoming a crotchety old bastard of a doc that no one wants to be around. So here again, I am sort of naming the problem. <laughs> okay, so what to do about it? <laughs> what to do about it? I mean, I think this is part of it, is naming it is huge, acknowledging it as a real force. And it's not, it's not pathological that you would struggle with under this load. In fact, that's normal. So I, I, I guess what I am trying to get here is step one is normalizing it so we don't feel like, oh, I'm weak, I can't handle it. No, feeling is part of my job this makes perfect sense. In some ways, I now have come to realize some of the lessons I've learned is that vulnerability is what's strong. Daring to feel things, that's strong. Daring to cry, that's strong. If I didn't have any feelings, if I couldn't be hurt, what's strong about that? Rather, the idea here is to push back on our capacity and learn to, have, to live with all these feelings. So how to do that along the way? I mean, for me, it has to do with getting outside and I do sort of a counterpoint, you know, if I'm around death and suffering a lot, I love to get out in the woods where life is just bounding out of the hills and, you know, it just, you're smothered in the proof of birth and creation. That kind of counterpoints it for me. Time in silence for me is huge. You might call it prayer or meditation, but really it's just being quiet and listening to myself and listening to the world around me huge, huge force for most of us. Um, and then the data would say too, that to push back, you need to share this. So having colleagues to talk about things with and to, to, to process, that's been a real challenge with COVID because you know all of us are working often remotely and very often by ourselves. So commiseration has gotten trickier. And I think a lot of us find ourselves, it's very seductive. I catch myself all the time feeling all this pain. And we've just explained 
there's all sorts of reason to feel all this pain. There's just plenty of pain around to feel. And yet, if I'm left to my own devices, I will slowly but surely taking all that pain and finding a way to feel inadequate. Like I can't handle it. Like I'm not up to it. I'm not good enough. And pretty soon I'm down a self-critical hellhole. And that's when I go down. So there the antidote is sharing it and realizing you're not alone and realizing you're not the only one and realizing there's a strength in this and that you can withstand it. Those are some of the things that I do and colleagues do. Again, data would tell you that finding a way to share things, talking it out, and some way to have a sort of a contemplative practice, learning to sit with things rather than trying to change them or fix them. Those are the two things we know actually work and push back on burnout. I'm laughing a little of your description of the the spiral of like, yeah. why am I feeling all this pain? There must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not doing it right. And I was like, oh, you just described my average Wednesday during COVID. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I feel very commiserated right <laughs> Good. now. <laughs> good, good. And laughter is a pretty good antidote too, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I'm so grateful for YouTube because there's, you know, I'm home alone with the dog most of the day and I'm like, he's funny, but he's sleeping most of the time. So where am I going to go? Thank you, YouTube, for something to get me to laugh. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about doing this work as a practitioner, and I'm wondering for the for the patients that you serve, for people who are dealing with an advanced serious illness that is going to shorten their life, what are what have you learned from them in terms of like what are they grieving along the way? Well, and you guys, your audience probably knows this, but like first of all, just to mention something like anticipatory grief, which was a novel concept to me that we can as human beings, as people who imagine our futures, we can grieve things before we've even lost them. Um, and I think that's a really key distinction. Again, you guys, your audience probably knows that well. But that's been clinically very important for me to just to name that with people who come in. They're, in, they're, they're fighting their disease. They're in fight mode. They're not talking about death. They're not thinking about death. They're pushing, you know, and they're gearing up and they're putting, finding positive attitude for this and that. And yet they wonder why they're moody or exhausted or crying out of nowhere or whatever it is. And it can be very, very helpful to name this thing called anticipatory grief. So that's one point. But back to your question, but more so specifically, what do I find people grieving? Well, the big ones are loss of a role, the issues of identity, you know, like who am I? And this thing comes along like a diagnosis and threatens that identity, you know, and takes away, maybe I can no longer do certain work. Or maybe my role among my family or friends was to be a certain way or to do certain things. And those things I can't do anymore. Or for some period of time, at least I can't because of treatments or whatever else. So this question of who am I now? You know, even when I'm still here, I'm BJ, I'm still here, but I'm not the same. And so this identity issues, grieving roles lost and feeling worthless because you've so identified your sense of value with your purpose or your work. That's a huge one for people. Grieving uh, the loss of one's um, sort of intellectual capacity, fatigue from dealing with illness and serious illness and its treatments can really rob people of sort of mental clarity and a spark. So I watch a lot of people I'm really upset that they can no longer think straight. And I hear a lot of people casually and otherwise throw out something of an advanced directive kind of statement like, hey, when I can no longer recognize you or when I can no longer, you know, read a book or do some sort of intellectual thing, uh, then I'm done. I, I, you know, I don't want to, then I'm just going to be a burden and blah, blah, blah. So grieving the loss of their intellect. And then also just plain old friendships come and go. Stress of illness happens to you, of course, as the patient, but it happens to your, the world around you, your friends, your family. That took me a long time to realize. I was, as, after my injuries, I was so beset by my own pain. My mother made a comment to me once about how my accident had happened to her too. And I was furious. I was furious because I couldn't handle the idea. If the pain was just my own, because of the stupid thing I did, well, that I can... At least it's just, at least I'm suffering the consequences of my dumb actions. But to think that it's spilling over onto people I love, oh, it, it enraged me. And I see that happen a fair amount too, where people, because this idea that no one wants to be a burden, 
That's another thing I hear people say, as soon as I'm a burden, then I want to die. But all these things are very interesting. You hear people sort of, the way we die before we die, the death before death, we let go of roles, we let go of sensuality, the loss of sexuality is another one that comes up a lot when people are asked, people are rarely asked. And that's something that can help people regain. But anyway, I don't remember where I was going with that. But I guess that, that is something of an answer to your question of what do I practically spe speaking see people actively grieving? It's the sort of loss of these constructs and they don't have necessarily enough time or energy to create some new constructs. And so oftentimes my job, if I have enough time with people, my work is processing that loss, but also creating something new in its place if we have enough time. What you described parallels so closely with what folks who have had someone die say that they are grieving, the loss of their role. I, am I still a mother that my child has died? Am I still a wife that my partner has died? Am I still a sibling that my brother has died? And grieving the loss of their cognitive capacity. I can't remember anything anymore. I can't focus on a book anymore you know, what value do I have if I was caregiving for someone for a while and now they have died or I have all this love and I don't know where to put it, uh, grieving the lack of hugs and connection and, and sexuality, maybe if the person they who died, they had an intimate relationship with. It's just, I was listening to you and I was like, that is exactly what I hear from people who have had someone die. Yeah. And for them, you know, for you saying like, if, if you have enough time with a patient, it might be to help them find new constructs, new ways of feeling purpose and meaning. And for people who are grieving after someone has died, it, there's so much urge to go back. Like, mm -hmm. I just want to go back. Yeah, I don't think it's as obvious for folks who are grieving. Like, maybe there isn't going back, there's redirecting, there's reconstructing. So, mm -hmm. Well, I think of also, as you say that, it's something that's really compelling. One of the most fascinating things I see, just that I find fascinating clinically is what I just call re-entry syndrome. So oftentimes, uh, and I'm, I, we can link it to caregiving too. So sometimes you'll meet someone who say has a cancer diagnosis and it's very serious and blah, blah, blah. And they go through all this hell of treatment and it works, you know, and they find remission. They're supposed to be celebrating. They're cancer free, you know, no tumor growth and balloons come out and kazoos and people, you know, and, but very often, I don't know about if it's most of the time, but much of the time that person doesn't, if they're honest, and when they come, they're quiet. They almost whisper it in the office. Like, like, I don't, I don't feel, why am I not excited? Everyone's congratulating me for beating this disease or being in remission. I, I, why am I unhappy? I should be celebrating. And the idea, I think what people are realizing in part was, and I see this with caregivers too, is even though the, the role of the caregiver can be so hard, so taxing, like dealing with illness directly yourself, it can put you in front of some very big truths. And I feel like once you kind of turn some corners with those truths, you can also then look at the rest of daily life as you used to know it as pretty silly and not necessarily something you want to go back to. And incidentally, for honest too, you can't go back to anything. You know, there's no going back. So this idea of reclaiming their life before their illness and treating it like this anomalous aberrant event that they can just get through and go back. That's the construct that we keep batting around in public, but that is not the way it plays out. And so I guess where I'm circling all the way to here is that there's even grieving good news of having to go back with the expectations of others of being the same old person when you're not the same old person anymore. And you can find yourself really missing your miseries, which you come to realize were filled with truths. And I think, I, I think that happens with caregivers as well. Oftentimes when I, you know, for friends who have been dealing with a cancer diagnosis or surgery of some sort and, you know, they get the good news, right, that the scan was clear or the tumor hasn't grown or, you know, the surgical incision has healed. And it's so inherent and instinctual to say like, oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Great news. And I, I pause myself sometimes and think like, I'm really glad to hear there's no additional bad news. <laughs> like no more additional BS in this moment because it doesn't take away 
all of the stress and the strain and the, and how you've been so fundamentally changed by that experience to just be like, like you said, bring out the kazoos and the cake. Mm-hmm. Everything's great now. Um, right. So yeah, leaving space for both of those experiences uh, for people, both who are caregivers and people who are, are dealing with the illness. Mm-hmm. So to bring us to a little bit more like current context thinking, you know, you mentioned COVID and how the working virtually has affected you and your coworkers of not being able to come together and share as much. And I'm wondering what you're hearing from patients in how this time period is affecting them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, it's much the same. It's this isolation thing and feeling cut off from one another. And when it comes down to it, so much of life's value, whatever your belief system, it really often comes down to connection um, one way or another connection to fellow humans, but connection to animals, inanimate objects, just connection, period. And so the act of feeling disconnected is, is a kind of a hell, is a purgatory-ish place for people, uh, especially in this state right now of not knowing. When I'm talking to patients who've been a patient for a while, in some ways they've got this COVID thing down better than the rest of us in that They've, they have a daily existence of, de- of dealing with uncertainty and not knowing what's coming around the bend. And in some ways, I'm realizing the piece of myself that's most comfortable with COVID is the piece of myself that's very comfortable in existential distress moments, That where, who's comfortable with the idea that the world could fall apart this afternoon you know, um, through my own dance with death and my own injuries. So in some ways, I'm seeing that the patients themselves have this in check in some ways better than the rest of us, the caregivers, the folks who aren't directly necessarily navigating the uncertainties of illness. Caregivers often are, but my point here is what going through the hell of illness and the isolation one feels from it is pretty darn good practice for a pandemic, but I don't want to glorify it either. One way or another, all, all this distance and being cut off is tantamount to a kind of death. And I think we're also still so in it still. You know, the end is still not in sight. So I, you know, I just want to note that. It's still a little dangerous to even reflect on it. I don't know how I feel about it sometimes. And sometimes I'm tempted to say, oh, I love it. As an introvert, oh, I, there's, I, I kind of like it. Oh. But no, I, I, I'm just groping for some conclusive statements when I'm still, there's nothing to conclude yet. We're still in it. I remember when, when things first started to really become an issue in late February and, and in March and here in Oregon, middle March was, was when mm. businesses started to shut down and schools closed. And there were so many webinars and conversations immediately, like within the first three weeks of like, how is this affecting grieving families? How is this affecting grieving kids? And I thought like, who even knows yet? <laughs> like, yeah. We, you know, and, and people knew what it was immediately affecting them. But I, yeah, thinking on what you said of, it's hard to reflect back on what's still happening. We can only continue to talk about it day to day of how it's showing up for us. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do is just sort of chart it a little bit so I can see for myself and learn a little bit. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really important detail being in it, really immersed in something and reflecting on it at the same time is maybe impossible. I'm not sure that, you know, you need a reflection requires a little safe distance. Um, whereas being in it, there is no distance. So anyway, it's, a, it's, I think it's a, it's a phenomenon worth noting. Well, that's an interesting thing to think about then in terms of folks who are dying because they are in it. And oftentimes there's an expectation or a hope for, from within and from without that they'll be able to reflect on it and have, you know, like proclamations of understanding of life and all of that while they're still going through it too. And yeah, really conceived of it in that way of that being a kind of an impossible challenge. Yes. And you will note, if you go kind of go scour the literature, most of the quotes about death, myself, you know, I'm, at least I've come very close to death in my own life. But for the most part, people who are going on and on about talking about death aren't about to die for the most part. The folks who, you know what I mean? The folks who are really in it, just, just to this point, aren't the one making grand statements about what death is and what death isn't. And so I think there's, that's important to note here. Um, abstraction is helpful with this subject. Uh, once it starts getting really real, ooh, 
And I think it's an important thing for all of us who work near this subject um, is to, you know, when I'm teaching med students, I always like, you know, don't get seduced into thinking you know this beast because you're around it all the time. Leave, uh, leave some space for when you're in these shoes, when you're actually at the edge of your horizon, <laughs> everything you thought you knew might just fly out the window and make sure you reserve the right to freak out. Um, and I just want to, you know, cause I might, I think I had this thing down pretty well, but who knows? And I won't know until I'm really, really in it. Another time relevant context, relevant question for you is around the idea that, you know, the, we know from statistics that the pandemic COVID-19 is really differentially affecting the black community and communities of color with higher rates of infection and higher rates of death. And even for children, higher rates of death. And, you know, thinking about that's rooted in so much like longstanding racism in the healthcare system and lack of access to healthcare and and current day Mm -hmm. disparities. And, And just wondering what you've seen or learned or recognized around the way, you know, racism plays out at the end of life for folks who are, uh, engaging with hospice or palliative care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huge. I, you know, there's so much. Uh, there's this is big, big stuff, and it's overdue in the medical field. I mean, you know, we've all known. I mean, just so many people are excluded from medical research because it's considered a confounding variable. For myself, as a disabled person, disabled people are often excluded from most studies because of their disability, because it would com- it would complicate the data. You know, so similar things, similar things happen with race. So we have this decades of medical research that really, if you start digging into it, is largely focused on white men, sometimes white women, but almost always white because they want their data clean, you know, mixed race, you know, chronic illness, disabilities, all these things, these realities that so many of us face, we end up being excluded from the research, which means we're excluded from the relevancy of the therapeutics, which you just follow that, follow that arc. And you see where we got, I mean, just even noting the research issue can get you to open up this problem and see, you get a sense of how big the problem is throw on economic disparities too. And who's accessing what kind of care, who's going to the shiny hospital and who's going to the County hospital. And, you know, we've all, in healthcare, I'm certainly you can see these things; they're obvious enough. But somehow we haven't—I uh, myself included—didn't find a way to handling them with some urgency. Even though I, as a disabled person, am part of this excluded minority. Anyway, say this is all very overdue, and I think a lot of us, myself included, need to mostly. What I think I need to do is shut up and listen in a new way. The other kind of realization: if you look at hospice. This idea that we're encouraging one another to look at our mortality and stuff, that's still a pretty white phenomenon. Most hospice patients, most hospice workers are disproportionately Caucasian. So even in my own field, you know, the African-American community is, a, I had learned, I had been aware of this, but I haven't really thought of anything to do about it, which is the African-American population in this country disproportionately dies in the ICU with chemo bags hanging, with futile efforts to protect life, et cetera, all this sort of, because the reason I've absorbed anyway is that because there's so much distrust among the black community around healthcare because they've been treated like guinea pigs and excluded, et cetera. And a horrible history of medical testing being done on African-Americans. I mean, the Tuskegee experiments, for example. So there's, there's this history where the black community has a very well-learned distrust of the medical community. So when I, as a hospice doc, go in and talk to a black family and say, you know, hey, what are your goals of care? Oh, comfort and peace are important to you and being with family is important to you. Okay, great. Well, my recommendation is for hospice, you know, and that, sh- that shiny new machine over in the corner, I don't really think it's going to help you. And that may be true, but they hear me saying, some guy peddling like, oh, you don't want that expensive machine. Well, let's just get you home with hospice, we'll get you out of this loop and onto this cheaper thing out of the way. That's what it sounds like. I'm I'm trying to sell them on less care, not better care. And I know that the sad part is, you know, that because of this trust, they are electing care that's not serving their goals very often. But I, I don't know how to chip away at that because I am part of the distrusted establishment that led them there in the first place. 
So uh, that's just to explain how this on some level plays out in my own clinical life. What to do about all that? Boy, I mean, I think the beginning here is listening and paying attention in a new way and not glossing over these things just because it's been this way forever. That's something of an answer to your, I don't know if that's an answer to your question at all, but it's kind of where I am on the subject. Well, I think it's, it's so important to sit with the idea of what, like for me as a white person that I haven't questioned being in a medical environment as a woman, I question a lot of things, but as a white person, there's a lot of things I don't question based on, on my race or the color of my skin and to, to have that recognition and, and how historical the roots are. Yeah. While we're now increasingly aware of our differences and the importance of some of these differences and how they play out historically. One of my hopes is that as we're disrupting all our understandings, that we're also going to come back to the basics and the fundamentals. We all bleed. We all die. We all love. We want love, et cetera. And that I'm hoping that through work, especially around things like end of life, which is truly this ashes to ashes moment, death can be this equalizing force. It has this potential to remind us of what we all have in common. And I think as even as we're exploring our differences, regrounding and reacquainting ourselves with the true fundamentals of what we're, where we actually do share space is equally as vital uh, and really, really important right now too. And this is kind of my hope that this existential crisis of the pandemic right next to social justice issues will link in this way that we'll realize our mortality together. And that gives us so much in common and gives us a common place and a common set of fears to work with. Yeah. And I, I, I'm thinking about that as like, you know, in the past I've heard things like, you know, death is a great equalizer. Grief is the great equalizer. Like we all, we all have it in common. It has a potential. Right. right, And I think about that as like the end note, not as the beginning lens of it. Like you said of like, yeah, we're, we're all going to die. We're all going to have someone in our life die, but what that death looks like, what access to resources we have, how we're treated with dignity going through that process. That is very different based on a lot of, different core elements of our identity. And so what are the policies and procedures that we can be putting in place to ensure equity so that we get to the end note of we've all had access to dignity, care, support, and love as we face the end of our life or the end of the life of someone that we care about. Yep. Amen. And again, that that isn't the reality. Boston Globe recently did a series on just proving just how differently we die and that it's not playing out as a equalizing force. We haven't, we haven't uh, re- nearly realized the potential charm of this great thing called death to actually act as this equalizer. It's not. We our structures are still gumming that up. But I do think it's an interesting place for us to start, is to begin to unpack this and do differently. Is in some ways starting at the end with the end note, like you're describing, and working backwards from there. If we if we focus on the end game and getting. I think most of us can realize it's important. We can find sympathy and empathy for folks who are dying. We can find a sort of permissiveness, like right to try laws. Like, oh, if you're dying soon, sure, you can try this or that medication. You know, there's a sort of a permissiveness that can kind of come with it. So anyway, my point here would be simply that maybe we could set ourselves, if if we're looking for a place to start, maybe starting with the end is a very good place to start and then working back up from there. So speaking of ends, as we come to the end of our time together in our conversation, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about your venture uh, of Metal Health, M-E-T-T-L-E, Health, uh, and the service that you're providing. Just to, if listeners are tuning in or like, I want to connect more, I want to find this service. Yeah, thank you. Please, yeah, please come visit us. So Metal Health, thank you for the spelling, metalhealth.com is, is, is our new little business that my partner Sonia and I have started spurred on by COVID. It's something that we'd wanted to do for a while, but COVID really kicked it forward. This is basically, we started an online palliative care company. It's a place where people can come to get extra support. Palliative care is growing as a field, but it's, it's very, it's well represented in urban areas. But if you get out uh, outside of urban areas, it's very hard to find parts of the Midwest, parts of the Southeast. It's extremely hard to find. So starting this online business means we can talk to people across the country. So even if you don't have a pad of care program near you, you can come to us on, online. The other novel thing here is that you don't require, it doesn't require a doctor's referral. 
we're starting with out of pocket, which is a problem, um, but we'll circle back to insurance and also want to work through employers to pay for these sessions. But sidestepping the medical industry to start at least allows us to provide this kind of service without the bureaucratic hurdles of getting a doctor's referral, et cetera. So anyone can call us up and schedule time with us wherever you are at any time in your course of illness. So that's what mental health is. We're just getting started, but we're open for business. So come on, come on and visit us there anytime. And listeners, I'll link to that in the show notes, as well as some other places that you can hear more from BJ has a TED talk, other various resources. And, and BJ, are you still working with uh, the Zen hospice community? No, not anymore. No, I, that was, um, I think I left there in 2016. Sadly, the ho- the house, the, the hospice house itself had to close uh, a few years back. But so Zen Hospice Project is now the Zen Caregiving Project. And so they're still alive and well and have considered their efforts now as an organization around training caregivers and volunteers around this kind of work of bearing witness and tending to folks at the bedside. So Zen Hospice Project is now Zen Caregiving Project. They're doing beautiful work, but I haven't been there for many years. So mental health is the best place to connect with you. Yep. Well, BJ, again, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me and and sort of sharing, you know, from your personal perspective and your professional perspective, it's given me a lot to be thinking about, which I'm sure I'll be doing the rest of the weekend. So I appreciate you Mm -hmm. taking the time today. Good, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're doing this work. It's, It's so needed. So thank you. And listeners out there, I say it every single time. Thank you for tuning in and being part of our community. If the show speaks to you in some way and you want to share it with friends and family, please do. If you want to connect with me, you can send me an email at griefoutloud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, is a great place to learn more about the Dougie Center and find all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud. So thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. 